in much of the world today, if a person finds that he's got an enemy at work, you know, somebody who's got it in for him, he'll take a chicken and he will go to a shaman or a sorcerer and they will cut that chicken and they'll bleed it out and they'll ask the help of evil spirits to get at that enemy. That's a weird way to start a sermon. This is an accepted part of folk Islam all over Muslim lands. Sadly, it's also part of many lands that are nominally Christian. Some kind of Christianity is held there. Problems with money come up. Neighbors, government, and millions of people around the world go to sacrifice. The sacrificed blood of animals is the key ingredient for ensuring fertility in much of the world. If you want to have a baby, bleed some chickens, bleed some goats. We feel pretty insulated from that, right? I, I, I don't think anybody here would tell a Christian friend that if God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers, find a chicken and find a sorcerer. I, I, I doubt that's happened. So what we, we tend to think about sacrifice in a metaphorical sense. We use the word sacrifice metaphorically. Many times I've said to students uh, who are struggling with their academic work that they might need to make a sacrifice in order to have some time for study. You know, if you want to improve in this course, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Others of you have said the same thing. I certainly didn't mean, young lady, you're going to need to find yourself a chicken and bleed that thing out if you're going to succeed in this class. <laughs> what we mean is getting rid of something or setting something aside or a habit in favor of something more valuable, in favor of something more important. I will get rid of this in favor of this. So it's a, it's a metaphor, our kind of sacrifice, but it's a metaphor about allegiance, about worth. We will kill something for the honor of something else or for the pursuit of something higher, something better. I will put to death, even temporarily, this thing for the honor of this thing. So I want to begin now by saying clearly that Although we're not bleeding out animals, we do make sacrifices. Human beings worship. It's how we're made. Human beings worship. We kill this for the sake of that. We give honor and allegiance and devotion all the time. We're always doing that. And we sacrifice valuable things in that pursuit. So I just want to begin by saying, what are you pursuing? think about that a moment. What are you pursuing? What are you honoring so that you sacrifice some good things for that thing? To get near it, to pursue it. We, everyone in here makes sacrifices. This isn't controversial. We'll put this away in favor of this. Then this may be a good thing. 
Well, this is the key issue that's at the heart of this letter to Thyatira. Verse in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 and following. It hits a lot closer than we'd like. And um, this city, too, this city of Thyatira is more like us than we might expect. In a lot of different ways. So if we compare it to the other six cities that received letters, it was the smallest, it was the least significant. Those others were regional capitals or centers of trade. They were all geographically prominent. All of the other cities are set on, on hills. They dominated the landscape around them. Thyatira was in a plain, in a valley, in a flatland. It was a Roman cavalry post, like a, an ancient train depot. And it was also known for manufacturing cloth, and copper goods. So if you imagine these, the seven cities of Revelation, kind of like the Northwest, we've got a Portland sort of place, a Seattle kind of place, a Spokane, come around, there's a Salt Lake City, there's a Boise, and then there's Thyatira, Nampa. <laughs> it's, that's the scale we're talking, that's Thyatira. Small, Manufacturing town, not very important. It doesn't seem to fit. And yet here it is, getting the longest letter of all the seven. And it's the central letter. What made it stand out uh, was its social life. The way that its social life was tied to its economic life. It was dominated by guilds. A guild's a, an association of artisans. Or so, an, it's like a union. Association of laborers that are committed to one another, to the success of their industry, setting prices, ensuring fair competition, helping support each other. There was a weaver's guild, a dyer's guild. There was a merchant guild, miner's guild, smelting, copper smelting guild. Et cetera, et cetera. And that seems nice. They, they really did help each other out, looked out for one another's good. But when a person discovered that God had come to the earth in Jesus Christ and that Jesus rules over all and that he offers life and he offers forgiveness, he offers a way to know the creator God and be reconciled to the creator God. Anyone who would surrender to him, when a person came to that, there was a problem with the guild. And that meant there was a problem with social and economic life. Why is this? Because well, think about what the guild did. On the day set for a guild meeting, which was a feast, the members would they'd meet at a designated place, and they would process with singing. And they'd, often they'd be carrying an idol. If you've lived in uh, a, visited a Catholic country that was syncretized with local religion, you've seen something like this. Processions, carrying idols. Apollo was the favorite at Thyatira. And they would be also in this procession bringing animals to be sacrificed. And the meeting would include a feast, 
The animals would be sacrificed. Wine would be poured out before the God. Libations. And before eating, they would praise this God and give thanks as if that God, say Apollo, was the one who had given them this food. And then over the meal, they would talk shop, guild business. And after the meal, the temple prostitutes would come in. More business would be done. Food and sex. Food and sex offered to the presiding demon. Soul and body offered to a demon. And the followers of Jesus couldn't do that. They had to make a different sacrifice. Now, the Lord Jesus had bled for them, and they knew it. God had bled for them, had cleansed them of all unrighteousness. Life for life, his for theirs. Offered for offenses committed. Offered so that blessing and not cursing would flow. So that a life of alignment with the creator would flow. And the blessing of God chiefly was adoption by him. No longer alienated, but adopted by the creator. And so the church in Thyatira became a family where they came together in response to Christ's sacrifice. They came together and they offered their souls and bodies, not to a demon. They offered their souls and bodies to the Lord to be a living sacrifice. Because once for all, a sacrifice for sin had been made. And now their ongoing sacrifice was praise and thanksgiving. And God poured out his continual grace in their meeting. These are two opposing kinds of meetings. So now a letter comes to this church. A letter comes to those who have received this message. And sacrifice is the thing that's under scrutiny. Please, I hope you're looking in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus speaks to them as one who looks deep within. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He asserts his divine nature. Words of the Son of God with flaming eyes. He is not like a Greek hero who's been glorified. He's not like an idol that can't see or hear or speak. He's speaking to them now. And as the living God, he sees everything. These eyes like flames of fire. He sees down, down, down into the motives, down into the intentions of the heart. And this is important. He sees beyond action. The one who sees everything. He speaks reassuringly. You'll notice a pattern in the letters. He begins with some assurances, some comfort, encouragement. And he says to them, I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. That's, that sounds good. That would be good to hear. If the Lord said that to us, that would be really good to hear. 
especially if you had lost a lot of social comforts in order to know God. If following Jesus meant losing your place in the guild, because business then became very difficult, almost impossible. Social life outside the community of the church, gone. Because like social life was connected to guild life. And so for some of these people, like if you are a dyer of cloth, and think of Lydia, she was from Thyatira, first convert uh, in Greece at Philippi, from Thyatira, seller of purple cloth. She was a merchant who'd come across. If you were a dyer of cloth, you had to suddenly become a farmer. That's all that's open to you anymore. Because nobody would sell you cloth to dye. The Weaver's Guild will not sell to you because the Dyer's Guild has an arrangement with them and you're not in it anymore. Or the other option is that you would have to travel to another town in order to perhaps, if there was cloth to sell there, buy the cloth there and then travel back, dye it, and then travel again to sell it because you can't sell it in Thyatira. Hungry days, sleepless nights. And so these Christians needed each other desperately. And that's part of the note that we, we hear in there. Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you've done. And I know that it was meaningful. I know what you've done and I know your love for one another. I know your love that is willing to sacrifice for me. I know your faith, your service. What that service means to one another. I know what your community is like, how you need each other. And I know your patient endurance. That would have been really good to hear. It all refers to sacrifices that they have made. I see how you've laid it all down. For me, the killing of this plan that you had, the killing of this practice, the killing of that relationship or those many relationships, I know what that sacrifice meant to you. And the surrender of this comfort or that comfort in order to please the one who bought them. You can see that none of these faithful Christians could claim to be cool, not in Thyatira. They are very unfashionable people now. They have set themselves against the social norms. They are the opposite of socially savvy. They are not doing the things that help them get along well in Thyatira. Most of them, though, we get this great indication, most of them found that to sacrifice coolness to sacrifice getting along well, to sacrifice social comfort, to sacrifice eating well. Yet it brought great joy. How do we know this? They found that suffering for Christ brought joy. We know it because they did it. He says, you gave yourself to this more and more. Why would you ever do that? Why would you say, yes, I will continually sacrifice so that I can't eat. 
or that I have to work really, really hard, or they have to lose my business and become a farmer. Why would you do that? Because of joy. It's the only motive, right? Humans are motivated by what is it that brings us happiness? And they found that joy was more than the happiness of comfort. And they gave themselves more and more than you did at the first. So in light of this commendation, there's a surprising rebuke in here. It's a weird one. They are tolerating a teacher who was saying something entirely different. Jesus says, I have this against you, though, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there's a member of the Christian community within this group who's made all these sacrifices, who claims to speak for God, she calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing or misleading the followers, Jesus' own servants, followers of Jesus. And we can see that what she's teaching is that it's fine for them to go to the guild feasts. That's what's under here. It's fine for them to take part in sacrifices to demons. We get another hint in verse 24. If you look how this teaching uh, might have been framed from her mouth. Jesus says, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. We're hearing... There's a common phrase in there, the deep things, the deep things of Satan. This likely was her justification for this teaching. It's one of the forms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was, it's not a system, but it, it's many, many teachers in the ancient world uh, were offering uh, another path to God that included the, the uh, receiving secret knowledge that these teachers claim to have. And what we're hearing in this, from this Jezebel, is something that other Gnostic teachers taught, especially in the second century. So for people who had received knowledge of God uh, about Jesus, they'd heard the gospel, they thought, okay, there's some, that is, that's some good knowledge about the creator. Those people could now get the knowledge of Satan. So we've got this stream over here that the Christians are offering we could get the knowledge of Satan because all knowledge was the goal. That's, that's what it was. And that would allow you to ascend into the layers of the heavenlies. So to get that knowledge, the deep things of Satan, if this sounds like Mormonism, yes, it's the same mess. Um, Jesus and Satan are brothers. They each have their own version of knowledge. Um, and that knowledge is attainable to human beings. So to get that, to get the deep things of Satan, they would have to go into the dark places. You can get the things of Jesus in church. If you want the things of Satan, go into the evil places. Go to the dark places. 
And because they, they argued that we've become holy, we have the light within us, we can go into those places and we'll be fine. We can give ourselves to what's happening, but we'll be gaining knowledge, this, these hidden things that Satan has hidden away, but they're deposited in the dark places. So they could do all the sacrifices. They could practice sexual immorality because it was for the higher cause of attaining knowledge. Jesus calls this self-proclaimed prophetess Jezebel. That's purposeful, of course. We heard in the reading from uh, 2 Kings about Jezebel. So this prophetess in Thyatira, Jesus says, has the same spirit. There's something about her teaching that is like Jezebel's. She was the Sidonian wife of King Ahab. You might remember her. She's, she hated Elijah the prophet. Um, and she had brought the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth from Tyre, from Sidon to Israel. We read how... She got her husband Ahab to set up a temple to Baal in Samaria, right next to the temple that was for God. And she led Israel to worship demons. She led God's people to worship demons. Right along worshiping God. Eventually, God sent Elijah to uh, set up a contest. Remember on Mount Carmel, Elijah builds an altar. He has the prophets of Baal build an altar. Uh, prophets of Baal call on Baal for half the day. Please light this fire. Nothing happens. Elijah says, all right, dig a trench, pour water, pour water. Soak this thing. He calls on God. Fire from heaven consumes the, the sacrifice, the altar, and the water that's in the trench, leaving no doubt that the Lord is God. And so Elijah says to the people, and this is that Crucial question that comes to us. If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And, what, and, and they've been given evidence who is God. Immediately after that dramatic moment, Jezebel tries to kill Elijah. And we find him running away. And as he's speaking with God in a cave, he whines. <laughs> appropriately. He wants. He says, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's faithful. And the Lord says, no, it's bad, but you're not the only one. 7,000 households in Israel have not bowed the knee to Baal. Sometimes I'm, I look at that and I'm encouraged to think, oh, 7,000, that's not bad. At, at most, that was 15% of Israel. At most. So flip that around. Jezebel's influence had led to 85% of Israel worshiping Baal alongside Yahweh, the Lord. Jezebel had introduced a god of darkness. It was a spirit of another culture. And most cultures have such spirits. Paul calls them the spirit of the age or the principalities and powers that rule a culture. Jezebel brought one over 
from Sidon. And they always set themselves up as rivals to the creator, to their creator. And they always, always, always demand sacrifice. It's what they want. They crave worship. And they get it however they can. And they keep their victims captive. And Jezebel was just the instrument of these principalities. This is sobering, because Jesus tells the church in Thyatira, you are tolerating someone like that. You're tolerating someone that, will lead to the, that is leading to the worship of another god. And he tells them the natural consequences. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Uh, he's using that also, that sexual immorality, the way the prophets always did, is it's an adultery. It's a cheating on God. Yes, it is, in this case, actually sexually, sexual immorality in the temple, but it's also cheating on God. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her... I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. Well, we hear him saying, he delays judgment. The Lord always delays judgment. He's a merciful God. He allows time and space to repent of evil. And he gives plenty of warning. But when a person sets himself or sets herself against God, then the natural consequences will begin to work out. He's ordered his world, both visible and invisible, so that natural consequences work out. He says those who join this false prophetess, those who adopt this teaching and go along with the spirit of the age, those who give themselves and heed the rule of darkness, that they will be turned over to its consequences. They will be turned over to the realm of darkness. We only have one self. This is what I was saying to the kids. We've got one self, and we can't give ourselves to both Jesus and to someone else. So if we give ourselves to darkness, we get darkness. It's just natural consequence. And he says, I will give them that. And the other natural consequence is their children. This could be taken in two ways. It could be the, those who follow them, follow that teaching. They're like their children just as Paul talks about those who've received the gospel, they're his children. Jezebel here has children, those who follow her teaching, and they will die. Receiving her teaching takes them into the swirl of destruction and darkness. They won't be saved from the second death, though they were part of the church. If they, give, if they turn from Jesus and reject Jesus and they give themselves to another god, they will receive judgment. A false gospel produces death. It also may refer to actual children. 
biological children, the kids of Christians. And we don't have to look very far to see this work itself out. The kids of Christians who follow the cultural spirit will not remain Christian. We, everywhere we look, we see Christian families who experience this. Parents who've tried to worship Jesus and a political party, either one. Or parents who've tried to worship Jesus and some dominant cultural message. They find their children don't know Jesus. And it, Jesus says that it, it becomes evident. All the churches will know. That this is obvious. This will be seen. A church like the United Methodist Church, like the Episcopal Church. Yes, I'm saying these things out loud. That compromises who Jesus is and what the gospel is will find they have killed their children. There's no gospel to pass on. And all the churches will know, Jesus says, that he searches each heart and mind and he gives according to what he finds there. After he gives this warning, woo, and that is a sobering warning, the Lord gives some great comfort. There's no other burden. He says that. There's no other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. I love this so much. I, it's so, this is good news. You don't have to become a deacon you don't have to become a pastor. You don't have to achieve anything. You don't have to uh, make these evident, tremendous strides in your Christian profession. You don't have to produce certain results. You don't have to keep a journal of your victories <laughs> or uh, some kind of account of your good and faithful days. Oh, I, this, this week I had two good days. No burdens. Just honor Jesus. That's it. Set him in your heart as Lord. That's it. Just, just honor Jesus. And don't make sacrifices to some other love instead of Jesus. Don't set some other love higher than Jesus. No other burden. Just hold fast to Christ as Lord. I hope that's relieving. I'd say probably most of us have some, I don't know where it comes from, but you have some vision of what you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to look as a Christian. And that came out of your own head. And Jesus says, no other burden. That doesn't come from me. All you've got to do is hold fast to me. But we will all, from time to time, sacrifice worship and sacrifice the pursuit of Jesus for something else. Someone else, something else. For the sake of someone else, something else, we may not obey Jesus carefully. We may obey this other thing. And those are the indicators of where our temptation is. So what do you prefer over hearing God's word and singing his praises? 
This is just a tell. What do you prefer more than here? This worship that we do. What do you prefer more than that? What do you sometimes want more than the grace of God? More than that corrective work that he gives? More than the smile of God? That's a tell. What, what do you sometimes want more than God's smile? That's where your temptation is. church, this thing that the Thyatirans loved and were so committed to, and they wanted more and more. It's not one entertainment option among many. It, it, this is not even a voluntary social meeting. It can, we can confuse that. The fact is we've been called by our Creator and our Redeemer into a life. We've been called by him, and this space is where we acknowledge that together. What we're doing is we're acknowledging what God has done. We're acknowledging a shared identity that we have. That's the fundamental thing that is happening. We are praising the God who has saved us. We're affirming our identity by coming together. It's where we can all say, I need God. Fundamental to who I am is I need God. Everyone else needs him, but I know it. And I'm thankful for forgiveness. And I need him to keep working in me. That's what we're declaring. Church isn't an activity. Like something we can just sit down for a while and come back to. It, it's who we are. It's just fundamental to who we are. And so when, when you are here... You're affirming your identity. So Jesus says to Thyatira, and he says to all his people, to the one who overcomes and who does my will to the end, or this is what he said to the disciples, the one who's in me and I in him, or all who abide in me, to the one who overcomes, to the ones who abide in me, I will give authority over the nations and the bright morning star. Well, that authority is the authority of Jesus himself. That authority over the nations, that's Jesus. We have it by being in him. The bright morning star is Jesus himself. That's what he calls himself at the end of Revelation. In Revelation 22, he says, I'm the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. To the one who overcomes, I give myself. As I said a moment ago, we're not just a voluntary association. We are just what Christ has made us to be. We're joined to him. So it's fitting to have our lives oriented to him. It's fitting that he receives our sacrifices. He receives our sacrifices. Rather than sacrificing he who is most worthy and worthwhile for something else. 
So that's the encouragement Jesus gives. You will find in him, as you, as you continue to hold fast to him, because that's all the call is. That's all the call is. You continue to hold fast to him, you will find grace and joy and blessing increase. He is worthy of our sacrifices. And you will have many other things saying that they are worthy. And we constantly have this choice. Is Jesus worthy of sacrifice? Or shall I sacrifice Jesus for that other thing? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, this good news that you have done the work for us in Jesus and that your burden is light. To be yoked to you, is not, it's not just light, it's goodness and it's joy. And I pray that we might, we might receive that. And Lord, I pray too on our, our behalf that you would, in your kindness and gentleness, shine the light of truth in the inner places where is our temptation? What calls for our attention that it is worthy to be, worthy to receive honor and glory instead of you? And Lord, we ask that you would show yourself so much better, so much more worthy, that we would love you rightly. In the name of Jesus.